Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded, recently hitting 6 million listens. Support us by buying a copy of Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a small donation. In return, we'll give you the chance to nominate a guest and even win lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. Find out more at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin. to another episode of On The Road Edition, hosted by Stevie Kim. Each week, she travels to incredible wine destinations, interviewing some of the Italian wine scene's most interesting personalities, talking about wines, the foods, as well as the incredible travel destinations. Hello, everybody. My name is Stevie Kim, and welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. Usually, I do this on the road, but today we're in Verona. It's the summer edition Verona special, and today my guest is Andrea Sartori. Ciao, Andrea. Ciao, Stevie. Good morning. How are you? Very fine. Are you getting ready for your holidays? Very ready. Listen, Andrea, so I usually see you like either on a plane or at airport lounges. Things have changed quite a bit since the pandemic, right? So what are your traveling schedule? Are you back to in full regime of traveling or what's going on? Not really. We are, as a company and myself, we are now totally considering the way we travel and we try to travel just for essential meetings. And most of the meetings right now are done on a digital way with video calls or any means that are offered two days after COVID and everybody accepts. So we cut our travels quite dramatically. And even myself, uh, go figure, I haven't been in Asia since November 19. <laughs> Let's tell you something. Yeah, I think people are just starting just slowly to go go back to Asia, mostly, right? This yeah, year. Yeah, not only that, you know, to be honest, today's days traveling has come very expensive. You look at the airfare and the hotel fare has, has increased dramatically. And that's why when you travel, you need to consider the cost of traveling, not just the time. And then you have to rationalize very thoroughly the way we travel. And this is not just me, but all our sales team is very careful. Saying that, we still travel to Europe. I've been in the United States three or four times already. So I'm not grounded completely, but but uh, I'm uh, traveling less. Oh, uh, definitely, right? I mean, I used to log in, you know, we're frequent travelers, all of us, right? And I used yeah. to log in like 300,000 miles per year. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, right? So well, yeah, the way we travel was probably too much, I guess. And COVID has forced us to reconsider the way we travel, which is a good thing in one way. But between me and you, I miss traveling anyway. <laughs> yeah, I don't miss the traveling being on the airplane, but I miss seeing different people absolutely, and different places, mostly. So definitely, I do believe our lives have completely transformed since the COVID. Absolutely. So is it more, I mean, do you think it's definitely more sustainable in terms of the way we're approaching wine business right now? I think it is. I think it is. And uh, we learned to accept uh, digital meetings, which was not the way forward before COVID. You know, it was kind of rare. Obviously, I was using digital meetings before COVID, you know, but now with the new instruments we have, the fact that is very well accepted by our customers and our distributions, you know, it cuts time, cuts money, you know, it's a very rational way, you know, to meet people. Although 
I don't like meeting people digitally. It's not the same thing. But uh, this is what it is. We have to live with it. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I am facing Zoom fatigue. We are, I think, one of the very few companies in Verona who used Zoom before the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? So, and then we, of course, accelerated even the virtual tasting, every single meeting. We even ran actually a wine competition digitally, sending all the wines, you know? I remember. Yeah, yeah it's crazy stuff. But I still love meeting people face to face, right? Uh, to be honest, it's not just us. I can see also our people, our customers and distributors as God travels dramatically. So we have less and less people coming to see the winery, which I think it's bad because it makes a world difference when you have people at the winery and they get the fascination of the place, you know, and you can really explain who we are and they can see physically where we are. You know, it makes a huge difference, but... Unfortunately, this has been done uh, by everybody else, not just us. So, you know, I'm in your website. For those of our audience, our listeners who are unfamiliar with you, your name, you're, of course, the principal of, you know, the Saltori Winery. Have you just changed your name, Casa Saltori 1898? Is that the official name now? Now is the official names because we realized that under Saltori di Verona, which is one of our lines, our premium lines, we had other concepts and other projects ongoing, so we needed a big umbrellas for all the brands we had. And so we decided to go more generic in Casa Sartori, uh, 1898. And underneath of Casa Sartori, we then explain all the projects we have. All right, so give us a brief overview of the Casa Sartori. Right. It's a company that was founded by my great-grandfather Pietro in, back in 1898. So I represent the fourth generations of the family. And as you know, the fifth generation is coming. Giacomo, that you know very well, and my nephew Pietro entered the company about a year ago. And now they are on their learning process. Hopefully, they will like it and they will stay and they will represent the fifth generation. So the company started out from... Uh, <laughs> Like many other wine companies, my great-grandfather was a restaurateur in Verona. And he had, by the way, a restaurant very close to here, the Cartiera Federigoni. Oh, uh, really? Right oh, yeah. here? Yeah, right here. But it, fact, it's no longer there, right? No, it's no longer there, but you have still a piece of it, Hotel San Pietro. That's, oh, that was the restaurant? That's where it was. Yeah. Oh, okay. So and what happened to the restaurant? We sold it and we focused on the wine business because uh, great-grandfather was effectively a restaurateur, was not a wine guy. But when we he bought a Villa Maria, which is still the headquarter of the company, he found a little wine cellar in the basement that was mainly used by the previous family to produce wine for home, you know, home, mm-hmm. home production. So it was not a commercial unit. But he had the idea to use that little unit to produce wine for the restaurants. And that's how it started. Oh, interesting. But then eventually, my grandfather Regolo, which unfortunately I never met because he passed away very young, was the one that had the vision that the Sartori family would be a wine family. So he was the one that eventually sold the restaurants and he put all the money into the winery. So you're the fourth generation? Right. Is that correct? Right. Okay. So what is your role in Casa Sartori exactly? And how long have you been working? Since you were like five years old? <laughs> Since I'm born. <laughs> uh, in the old time, my dad was talking about business even in the home. You know how, it, how that generation was. I was basically raised talking and knowing a lot of wine people. The thing that really fascinated me into the wine business, not the product really, but the people. 
you know, back in the days, I'm talking about the 70s and 80s, uh, most of entertainment was done home. We were not bringing people at the restaurants. Right. We were inviting our customers in the home. Right, have, right. Uh, you know, food with us. And so I got really fascinated because even then our company was expert oriented. So we had all sorts of different people coming to the home. Germans, uh, Americans, Canadians, uh, French, just name it. And that people really fascinated me. And that was really what got me into the wine business. Where is your biggest export market? The classics, you know, Germany, UK, US and Canada. So Germany is your number one. Germany is still number one. Right. UK pretty much equal. And then we... And well, now with the Brexit and all, how's that changed? We, we hold in numbers, although UK has become a very difficult market, very competitive, but it's still a huge market in terms of volumes. And saying that, we are now in nearly 70 countries. Export for us is still 60% of the business. Right. So 40% Italian. Italian market, yeah. Right. So can you just give us some numbers, like how many wines, how many estates, you know, how many lines, how many bottles? Because I know you're huge. People don't understand that. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, are, we are pretty big. Last year, we sold uh, nearly 15 million bottles. One five, 15. 15, yeah, mm-hmm. one five. And most of the numbers are coming from Satori brand in a different market segments, let's say, but mostly premium. We're not really much into super premium, but we are more into premium. What do you mean by that? Can you expand on that? Yeah, what that pre- means? Premium means uh, anything which is retailing between 15 and 20. Mm-hmm. For example, in Italy, we have a large distribution in uh, off-trade. So we're pretty much in every supermarket and we are one or maybe Second one, a leading company in terms of repasses and Amarones in the market. Who's uh, number one? Probably Cantina di Soave. I'm not sure about okay. that, but pretty much we fight for number right. one and number two. Spot, yeah. I didn't know that. Then every market is actually different. In certain markets, we don't do off-trade at all, like United States. is only on-trade. Uh, Canadians, as you know, is monopolies, so it's only off-trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every market has a different approach, but this is pretty much the numbers we do. Like I say, 60% is uh, export, 40% is Italy. And um, this is pretty much what we are. So we are probably in the top five companies in uh, Verona Mm -hmm. in terms of turnover and volumes. What is your signature wine? Because you have so many. We have so many because uh, when you are our size, you have to cover all the appellations of Verona. So Mm -hmm. we do actually Soave, of course. We do Bartolino, better say the wines from Legarda. But our focus, and this is because... Where we are and who we are is definitely Valpolicella. So Valpolicella, Ripasso and Amarones are our top sales anyway. So, you know, Ripasso, right? But do you think Ripasso in a way has been, I don't want to say cannibalizing, but in a way it has put Amarone in a very difficult place in the market. What do you think about that? No, I think Ripasso has cannibalized eventually Valpolicella rather than Amarone. Uh-huh. Amarone has a very high image, has a very high personality. So Amarone, I don't think Amarone was touched by the Ripasso way, which is now, if you look to the numbers of the consortium, Ripasso is by far the biggest wine, mm-hmm. like 30 plus. Long. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So if you look to the split in, yeah. in the sales of Apolicella, which are around 65 million bottles, mm-hmm. you have 30 plus million bottles of Ripasso. You have 17 
million bottles of Amarone and the rest is Valpolicella. So actually Ripasso are little by little taking the place of the regular Valpolicella, which is not a bad news because you are premiumizing the brand, the appellations anyway. And because of the profile, the tasting profile of Ripasso is actually a very modern wine. If I would provide the modern consumers and ask them, you know, which kind of style you like in your red wines, most likely it will come out Ripasso. Because this is really a modern wine, although we've been doing uh, the appellation is started in 1924. I think even now, both Ripas and Amarone are very modern, very fit for the modern consumer. Okay. So we're going to do some like speed questions now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ouch. I, yeah. <laughs> no, because I know you're like a super expert. I love talking to you because you have an insight into really the markets, right? So what are your five trends that you see in America or Germany or UK or Asia in terms of markets? What are the five things that you see that you can share with our audience? There are a lot of talking, obviously, about uh, organic wines. Mm-hmm. And are you doing organic wines? We do too, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, although the numbers are not delivering, the promise, or let's say talking in the market, Mm -hmm. I think it's probably something that is worth it to explore for all of us. And then uh, the new trend, I know you're not going to like that. Wine to Wine Business Forum. Everything you need to get ahead in the world of wine. Supersize your business network. Share business ideas with the biggest voices in the industry. Join us in Verona on November 13 to 14, 2023. Tickets available now at pointwine.net. New trend by the younger generations is health, health consumption. I know. I know. The younger generations are kind of walking out from high alcohol. So low alcohol. So the new trend, and again, there is a lot of talking. Whether this is going to be transformed into numbers and volumes is as to be seen. But now the talking is low alcohol or actually even zero alcohol. Are you doing, contemplating doing zero alcohol? We are working on that. Very difficult case because to produce good quality wines in low alcohol is very difficult. Yeah, I've tasted some. They're all shit. (laughs) It's just like juice, you know, like call it juice, not wine. Low alcohol. And when I'm saying low alcohol, I'm thinking about something between 8 and 9%. Oh, okay. Something like that. Then when you move down to zero alcohol, then it's really difficult, very, very difficult to make wines that make a beverage that makes sense. In fact, even I, I taste a lot of stuff and it's terrible. Yeah, it's crap. <laughs> and I, especially when Just you, drink juice, you know. I would say, like, why bother? And, right? and especially... You're red, right. I don't like that. No. And red wines are very difficult. White wines are difficult. Very mm-hmm. wine, uh, Red wines very, very difficult. Sparkling wines are a little bit easier because your palate gets deceived a little bit by the bubbles. So it tastes nearly normal. But, you know, this is all the people is talking about. I drank them. Um, I was in Venice the other night. It was Saturday. Yeah, two days ago. And they were doing the candidacy for La Cucina Italiana for UNESCO Heritage. And they were serving Bizol's 10.5%. All right. And even then, I'm like, you know, it's it's kind of like borderline, right? Like going towards... But not quite. And consider that technically it's easy to do compared to a 
yeah. <laughs> to lower alcohol or zero alcohol. But this is, you know, what it is. So is that going to change? Maybe. Are those wines are going to be really successful in the market like beer has been? The alcoholized beer is very successful mm-hmm. right now. I don't know. I can hear from my customers a lot of talking, you know, and they're asking us, are you doing something? And we are. Yeah, we're working. Don't ask me when we're going to be ready because I have no idea. Right, right. (laughs) All right, I'm going to try it and I'll say it's crap, but, you know. (laughs) Then trend number three. You were up to trend number two. Number three is definitely sparkling wines. The sparkling wines wave is still growing. And you have seen what happened in Prosecco land. They got to incredible numbers. You're talking about more than 600 million bottles yeah, it's, a it's year. it's crazy. Uh, but now, you know, everybody's trying to come out with other concept. You know, whether they're going to try that to steal from the Prosecco market, that I don't know. But definitely sparkling wines is uh, very successful for the new generation. Number four? White wines anyway, white, aromatic. What are you producing in terms of aromatic white wine? we trying to, well, of course, Soave, which is, um, I know nobody. Mm, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really consider aromatic. Uh, well, if you treat uh, <laughs> Garganega properly, yeah. you, you can have uh, some aromatic profiles. Right. But then you have in Verona, you have two other wines that are really there. One is Custoza, which unfortunately is not very successful commercially right now. And then, of course, the Lugana, which is a, another phenomenal wine, selling like crazy. Yeah, but it's had some weather, some bad hailstorm recently, right? Yeah, this year is looking very difficult. Yeah. They had two times pretty massive hailstorm. I don't know the last one because it happened last week. We are still waiting the reports from the consortium, but apparently it has been pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, Saturday when I got home from Venice, I know. my entire house, I live on the, like the nine top floor, and it was it was, I mean, our trees are anchored, but they were all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so, know? but this is, the, I think, the five trends. Um, no, that was four. Number four? Five. Let me help you out there. Rosé has surpassed white wine. How crazy is that? Uh, yes and no. According to the American economist. Rosé in the U.S. is doing very well. Unfortunately, it's French rosé. <laughs> we Italians are trying to break the French uh, dominion on the U.S. market, but it's very difficult because somehow the U.S. consumers, when they're thinking about rosé wines, they go automatically into French. I mean, this is a damn shame, to be quite honest, right? Because I'm enjoying a lot of rosés, Italian rosés. But what do you think is the problem of the less than, you know, lackluster performance of Italian roses. I know a lot of the big houses, they're changing the color, making it a bit more Provence, you know, to make it approachable. This this is uh, the way forward if you want to approach the U.S. consumers. Anyway, I don't think it's quality. I don't either. It's pretty much up to to the game. It's just uh, the trend, you know, trends. And they started before us. And this is something. I have my own theory. You want to know? Sure. So I think it's because Italians always considered rosé as kind of second class, you know, wine. Italians still right now, they don't really believe in rosés because they snub it, right? It's either white or red. So unless it gets popular here. Definitely. You can't be big in a market if you're not big home. I agree. I think this is the main yeah. Concept. This have, is the main problem, right? I, you gotta be big in your country before you even think to break into actual markets. And 
The major mistake many targets has done is not to understand the trend and keep making rosé too dark, which was not accepted by the market. It's not just US, it's also UK and any other markets. They keep saying to us in the past, your rosé is too dark and it, it doesn't work. So now, finally, and, and you know the system in Italy, you have to change the disciplinare if that is a DOC wines. And before mm-hmm. we change the disciplinare and make sure we could produce legally a lighter colors, year passed by. And in the meantime, the French took the market by storm, especially the rosé from the south of France and so forth. And so there was something I always... <laughs> was my benchmark. I'm sure you tasted before. There is a rosé in the market, which is called Whispery Angel. Yes, of course. And that is retailing for 20 bucks. That's a lot of money for a rosé, but it's very successful. They reach some incredible volume in the U.S. market. So it tells you the story, you know, marketing, communications, and of course, they started before us. And that's how it happened. Yeah. What are you doing in terms of communication? Have you changed anything recently? I mean, you've definitely changed the brand, right? So that's a repositioning on your part. What else have you done? Because you've been in the business for so many years. That's a good question. We try our best due to the limited resources we have, you know, as a company. How can you have limited resources? <laughs> you're, you're selling 15 million bottles. Still, we have limited resources, but we want to improve that. We want to change a little bit our communication into making people understand that we are not just a wine company, but we start from the products. Right now, 80% of what we sell comes from our own vineyards. So we need to explain people that we are not just... Oh, I didn't know that. That's winery. significant. Oh, yeah. That 80% is a state grown? Yeah. So we are not just a winery. We are a fully integrated system and we control quality from grapes to bottle, which mm-hmm. is kind of unique. All so. right. So listen, before you go, I need to ask you something a little bit more, you know, close to home, right? Mm -hmm. And it's about wine fairs, because you and I talk all the time about this, mostly on the plane, right? But what are your thoughts in terms of wine fairs nowadays? Well, it's clear to me that wine fairs are important, but probably not as important as 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, before internet. I mean, if you think about it, right? Before iPhone, video conference, iPhones, and so forth. And we need to understand collectively as a system. This is something we are discussing between colleagues all Mm -hmm. the time. Yeah, I have this discussion as well. Right, especially recently, because definitely we come to a point that we cannot afford all the wine fairs you have in the market. And definitely we cannot afford anymore to do three major wine yeah, fairs. Yeah, the, the three bigs, right? The three bigs, one which are running in uh, one and a half months, more or less. You know, Paris is in February, then mid-March you have Provine, and then uh, early Venetian. April you have Italy. So this is, this is can't go. You it's know, this tough. Is, this is not working for the future. So we need to understand where we will rationalize wine fairs. Then you have minor fairs, which is like London Wine Trade Fair. Mm -hmm. You have all sorts of Asian fairs. And I think many of us has already terminated those fairs. But the three big ones we need to rationalize. This is something that is going to happen, I think, very soon. So most of us will have to understand whether we go to all the three of them or just two of them. And my answer is we have to cut one fair at least. Yeah, because you're very, like, you know, um, savvy businessman, right? So, and you 
know the market inside out. So your prediction is that, from what I understand, that most of the producers, many of the producers, whether they're small, medium, or large, they will have to make certain decisions to, to make it more sustainable. And look at a company like us and many other companies of our size or even bigger. Mm -hmm. We have a network of salespeople in the market. As you know, we have somebody placed in China that Mm -hmm. covers most of the Asian market. We have people in U.S. We have people in Europe. We have our sales team here. So we cover the market. You know, we don't need to wait the market to see us. So uh, wine fair is also changing uh, skin, if you like, and we need to understand that. So one fair, to be honest, has to go. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is a promising note. One fair must go. So that's, yes, statement by Andreas Artori. (laughs) All right. That's it for today. Andreas, thank you so much for popping by and sharing your insights of the wine business market and sharing business ideas. That's what we do all the time. Speaking of which, sharing business ideas. Andrea always comes as a pichetta for moderating one of the sessions at Wine to Wine. So we hope that we can see you there. If you're interested, the program is more or less out, wine2wine.net. And don't forget to subscribe and like our pod channels, wherever you get your pods, whether it's iTunes or SoundCloud or Spotify. And then we'll see you soon. Ciao ragazzi! joining us on another installment of on the road edition hosted by stevie kim join her again next week for more interesting content in the italian wine scene you can also find us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods you can also check out our youtube channel mama jumbo shrimp to watch these interviews and the footage captured of each location chin chin